My name is Rosemary Wall and I'm a lecturer in global history at the University of Hull and today I'm going to talk about how um, the war affected women in the years following. So in her recent book, Singled Out, Virginia Nicholson has discussed the difficulties of a generation of women who were unmarried following the gender imbalance of the population after the First World War. Like the press in the early 1920s, Nicholson focuses on the two million surplus women. However, she notes within the book at one point this number was rounded up from 1.72 million. So through my work regarding the Overseas Nursing Association, which I'll refer to as the ONA, an agency run by lady volunteers who recruited nurses for the colonies and areas overseas with significant British communities, I became interested in this statistic as it resonated with the large numbers of women who applied to the ONA following the First World War, as shown by this graph. So you can see there's this sudden leap of applications in 1921. Um, so I've been looking at the literature on surplus women to try and uh, figure out why there is such an increase at this time. Discussions of nurses during the First World War are complicated by the number of women who were recruited as voluntary aid detachments, or VADs, of which the most famous has been Vera Britton. So, in authors' accounts, these are, women are often conflated with nurses who had trained for three or four years. Um, and for this story, it's very important to distinguish these VADs and professional nurses, as VADs were not eligible for the ONA, as colonial nurses were expected to have at least three years of training at a hospital with over 100 beds and much further work experience. Two years into the war, the Military Service Bill of 1916 conscripted unmarried men. 700,000 British soldiers died during the war. The First World War especially affected the middle classes, with a higher proportion of officers killed than those in the lower ranks. And a sample of um, early colonial nurses reveals that most of these women were from the middle class, and uh, women from the middle class tended to marry men of their own class. So the greatest numbers were unmarried daughters of engineers, professionals, civil servants and commercial traders and tradesmen, as well as a significant group whose fathers were farmers. The deaths of these men resulted in a particularly large gap between the male and female populations of people aged between 25 and 34, with 1.158 million unmarried women and 919,000 unmarried men in this group according to the, 19, uh, the 1921 census. Even those who survived were sometimes left in shock and alienated from prospective marriage partners. So Catherine Holden has noted that 10 years later, half of these women were still unmarried. So this talk is to inspire people to think about the deaths of um, these men affected the lives of women of their generation. Nicholson's book offers at times a very emotive account of how a group of women matured in the knowledge that there were not enough marriage partners and hence a lack of opportunity for bearing children as well. Her book refers to a number of case studies, mostly middle class, but not ex exclusively so. Some of these women lost their fiancés or suitors in the war. Others never had the opportunity for courtship because of the competition for men. Nicholson touches very briefly on the topic, which is the focus of my talk, the opportunities for marriage, which were brought by emigration. She examines in more detail the opportunities for women in nursing, amongst other professions such as teaching, and even an example of a rare chance to work in high-level finance. 
Women had had a range of opportunities for work during the war, including banking and secretarial work, industry, transport and agriculture. The number of women in paid employment increased from 4.93 million to 6.19 million during the war. And many wartime opportunities for work were better paid and provided more rewarding roles than previous opportunities. When the troops were demobilised and there was considerable unemployment, these women were expected to stand aside and return to more traditional roles for women, whether in the home or in more feminine careers. 750,000 women were made redundant in 1918. Although there was a boom in employment of men straight after the war, by 1921 there were half a million unemployed ex-servicemen. So indeed this reinforced the policy of official and unofficial marriage bars in many roles, in particular nursing, teaching and the civil service, where women had to resign upon marriage. And this was in spite of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act of 1919, which was meant to prevent discrimination because of sex or marriage within public offices and professions. So although the press sensationalised the results of the 1921 census using the phrases surplus and superfluous women, the imbalance of population in Britain and in the empire was not a new phenomenon arising with the First World War. The 1851 census showed that 30% of English women aged 20 to 40 were unmarried, although some of these women would marry in the future. Approximately one third of British women between the ages of 25 and 35 were unmarried in the late 19th century, and census records show that this imbalance continued in the Edwardian years. From 1884, the British Women's Emigration Association sponsored working class women and distressed gentlewomen to settle overseas to correct the gender imbalances in settler colonies where there were more men than women and to reduce the surplus of women in Britain. With worries about demobilisation and restructuring following the war, the government established the Oversea Emigration Committee in 1918, aiming to combine activities which had been organised across many departments and voluntary organisations, such as the United English Women's Emigration Society. Not only were there surplus women in comparison to single men, but 500,000 British women were receiving out-of-work benefits five months after the war ended with one of the problems being that women were not prepared to return to the drudgery of domestic service. Additionally, a government conference regarding migration in March 1919 had highlighted that wartime roles for women had provided them with valuable experience for the Dominions. In 1919, the Society for the Overseas Settlement of British Women was established as the Women's Department of the renamed Overseas Settlement Committee, and this society was provided with an annual government grant. So the government wanted to organise emigration for women, controlling who was selected for emigration, but it also wanted this to be organised by a society which could accept charitable donations, which a government department couldn't do. So these donations were used to fund loans to enable the selected candidates to emigrate. And in 1928 and 1934, <coughs> they also funded tours for schoolgirls to visit Canada and Australia. The society's panels included ones for areas, Africa, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. And there were also special panels for work, for nursing, for training and for agriculture. Centres were even established to train girls in domestic and farm work which would be of use overseas. A booklet produced by the Overseas Settlement Department just after the war used the gender imbalance at home and in the colonies to entice emigrants. 
The Overseas Settlement Committee existed until 1936 when it was absorbed into the Dominion's office, but the Society for the Overseas Settlement of British Women, or the SOSBW, continued to operate until the, the early 1960s. As just mentioned, candidates were selected for migration. This was because the Dominions did not just want to receive people from Britain who were regarded as unemployable. The right type of girl for migration should be educated, be able to learn quickly and be energetic and self-reliant. The Dominions were presented as offering a freer lifestyle for women. And the Empire Settlement Act of 1922 included provision of cheaper passage rates for travel to Canada, Australia and New Zealand to entice these women. All of this effort was in spite of the evidence collected by the Dominion's Royal Commission of 1912-17, to which found that the casualties of men from the Dominions during the war meant that marriage prospects in the Empire had also declined. Even more worryingly, men were emigrating as well as women. The government was just as concerned with the problem of employment for 4 million ex-servicemen, with the Public Works Department estimating there would be 3.3 million unemployed men. So in 1920, 125,000 women emigrated, but 115,000 men also did. Between 1923 and 1927, more men than women emigrated through the Empire Sep Settlement Act, and therefore emigration was making the problem of the gender balance in Britain even worse. Despite these problems in attracting larger numbers of women for migration, the work of the SOSBW and the Overseas Settlement Committee may have inspired the increase of applications to the Overseas Nursing Association. Indeed, the first Overseas Settlement Department publicity booklet listed the need for trained hospital nurses first amongst the three commonest opportunities for women, along with children's nurses and governesses. Female teachers and doctors were also sometimes required. So the surge of applications in 1921 coincided with reports in the press and the census publication which highlighted the um, extra women in Britain compared to men. Indeed, the ONA stipulated that ideally the nurse should be older than 25 but younger than 40, so a perfect cohort of women um, seeking marriage overseas. And a sample of 750 applicants from, from 1896 to 1960 sorry, 1926, reveals that the average age of applicants was 32. So, um, from 1923, um, I've taken statistics which show that um, the age of um, nurses when they married and the percentage who succeeded in finding partners, and I've um, scoped this across um, from 1899 to 1923, so in 1909, uh, sorry, 1901 and 1902, nurses were particularly successful in finding husbands and breaking their contracts in empire in order to do so. But even so, still after the First World War, over 40% of the nurses who went out into empire broke the contracts that they were given in order to marry men. So um, this means that they were given a contract of three years and um, they had to resign within that three years for this statistic to be recorded. This means that many more nurses may have worked for their three-year contract and then got married. So we can see from this that the length of service before marriage um, was largely within this three-year period, but some nurses renewed their contracts again and again. So one nurse, for example, married after nine years. Some married very quickly. Um, two nurses of this cohort in 1923 married within six months of arriving in the colony. 
So the Overseas Nursing Association used marriage as an enticement to women to come into the empire, even though this was um, a huge financial cost to a lot of the colonies because they had to pay for the nurses to travel into the empire um, for only for them to resign. We can also see the age at marriage of these women. So um, the youngest of these women were 28 upon marrying, but women had the opportunity to find partners into their early 40s. But there's a peak of women in their um, early 30s who managed to find marriage partners in empire. So um, as late as 1930, in a newspaper cutting, the ONA was still using marriage um, to entice women to apply. And uh, Lady Antrobus, one of the ONA committee, said, to sum up the advantages and disadvantages, the association undertakes to see that arrangements for the nurses' board and lodging are made by a reliable committee in the place to which she is sent. If she is the right kind of person, the community receives her with open arms, which, taken literally, means that she has a good chance of getting married. And this was advertised in a, a London newspaper um, <laughs> in 1930. Um, and we can see also from the um, discussions within the colonial office and within the ONA committee that um, this um, idea of nurses going out into empire um, and getting married was actually a good thing for the empire. There was a great mission for women in Africa, Sir Harry Johnston, um, the explorer and adventurer said, and their work was as useful as the men's for the development of the country. Their health too was better owing to their more sheltered lives and no doubt their greater temperance. He hoped more of the nurses would marry and settle there. So this had been a rhetoric that had been going on for a long time, long before the First World War. In 1909, um, the colonial secretary had issued a circular stating that white women were in empire to promote social respectability and deter men from pursuing scandalous liaisons. And by 1920, the colonial office held that marriage life should be the rule rather than the exception in the crown colonies and protectorates. However, the ONA also provided a way for early 20th century women, inspired by feminism and an increase of employment openings for the middle classes, to choose a life without marriage, in favour of work from which they were expected to resign if they married. Marriage may well not have been the only reason for the surge of applications in 1921. Women were increasingly seeking careers, and many have been inspired by, uh, may have been inspired by work in World War I to seek more diverse nursing work. So um, the topic of surplus women is far from a neglected topic um, amongst historians. And indeed, Virginia Nicholson and Catherine Holden have shown with their historical overviews of single women in Britain that there is much more scope for detailed research into the impact of the First World War on different groups of single women. Thank you.